1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So before we read what we're going to read, just briefly I'd like to say, I think most people here tonight in this room would agree that we are in the last days. But I'll tell you one thing I don't know that everybody understands is the last days didn't just start. So according to the Bible, the last days started when Jesus came on the scene. Do we all understand that? To give you one verse, I could give several, but Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets says this, has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So for the longest time, I thought the last days must have started in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. But the last days have been going on since the time our Lord walked this earth. That's when the last days began. But I would say it's pretty obvious that we're headed into what I would say is unprecedented evil or perilous times. Or I would say we're in the last part of the last days. I think I can put it that way, right? Because the earth today is becoming ripe for judgment. It really is. And when it comes, part of what we want to talk about tonight is we want to be on the right side of the tracks when it happens, when it does come, because it is going to be a very dangerous place to live because it's becoming increasingly that literally with every day. Ask Michael Webb. He'll tell you it's becoming bad. So Paul said this, he said, know this, that in the last days, it's a common verse we know in 2 Timothy 3.1, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Perilous times will be here, he's saying, in the last days, at the very end of the last days. It's going to be a dangerous place to live on this earth. And out of that, there's going to come two groups that are going to emerge in these last days. Two destinies, two groups with a destiny. And the question we're going to ask tonight is, which group are you going to fall into? What is going to be the question in the title of the message is, what is your end time destiny? Because we all have one. So we'll read here, starting in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So I don't know how many people know this. They believe that the book of James was probably the first letter written in the New Testament. And there's a range on that anywhere from 49 AD to 62 AD. And it's hard to pinpoint those things. But they're certain that Thessalonians, if it wasn't the earliest, was one of the earliest and was probably the earliest letter written by Paul. And it was written just 20 years after the Lord's death, around A.D. 50. And he was writing this to a young church that he started. So he started this church, and they were getting a lot of persecution. And he's concerned about him. He wasn't able to spend a lot of time there. He kind of got driven off. I don't want to get into all that. But driven off, but he's concerned about him, and he tries to get back several times to see how they're doing. He's not able to do it. He has to send Timothy. And Timothy brings him back a good report about this young church. And they're doing great. He said, the, your faith is known all throughout Macedonia. And they're a church of love and faith and expectation. They're doing really well. And he has a lot of good things to say about it. And you, you read the whole letter. He has a lot of affection for these people. But they have a lot of concerns. 
several concerns. And one of the concerns we want to look at part of tonight is they're concerned about the Lord's return. And at the end of every chapter, as a matter of fact, he brings it in at the end of every chapter of this book about the Lord's return, brings that up to him. We won't look at that tonight. But at the end of chapter 4, now we're re we read chapter 5, he addresses their concerns. They have concerns about, they've had friends and relatives that for whatever reason, there wasn't widespread persecution started yet as far as killing Christians at that time. But there was persecution. And for whatever reason, he's, people had friends and relatives that were dying, that were saved, that were Christians in Thessalonica. And these people are concerned about it. And that's what he's addressing there in chapter 4. They're like, what's going to happen to them when the Lord returns? You know, are they going to be left behind? Or are they going to miss out on the blessing we have of seeing him when he comes back? Because people back then, the Gentiles living in Thessalonica, they had all these crazy ideas about what happened to dead people. You know, they're wandering around. And those people can't just get abused of their thinking, like, right away. So they're wondering, well, what about our dead relatives in the Lord? When the Lord comes back, what's going to happen to them? And so he answers that. Look in verse 13. He's saying, hey, they're not going to just be left behind. And he, so he encourages them. He says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. In other words, you're going to get to see them. For if we believe, and he taught them this, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. So any of us in here that have experienced a loved one that was saved, that died, you can know God is going to bring them with him. You're alive and remain. You're going to see them coming. They're going to get resurrected and get their body before we do. They're not going to miss out. And you're not going to miss seeing them. You're looking forward to that. He says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, verse 14. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. You can be certain of this that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And who is going to rise first? It isn't going to be the ones still alive when the Lord comes back. The dead in Christ, those that died in the Lord, they will rise first, he says. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the fact that we've had people pass away in this church that we know we're saints, we don't have to feel sorry for them. They're going to get up there before we are. So that's why he says in verse 18, so comfort one another with these words. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? You lost a loved one, and it's like, man, they're going to be coming back, and they get their body before I do, their resurrected body. He's saying that's a comforting thought. That's what he tells them. And so that's what he's dealing with there at the end of chapter 4. And in chapter 5, he's dealing with another question. So these people, they've heard this teaching, but they still have some questions about this. Because like I said, he didn't get to spend a lot of time with them at first. And so they, they know about that the Lord's coming back, this rapture's going to take place. But they're concerned the day of the Lord. When is this all going to happen? And that's what he's addressing here. When is this going to happen? So that's what we have in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And Paul writes to them, he says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for you yourselves, you know something perfectly, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So that times and seasons, that is a phrase that was used to speak of the end times. So we don't have to turn to it, but in Acts 1-7, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, when are you going to restore Israel? They knew it was going to happen. And his answer to them was, he uses that same phrase. He tells them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. And that's what Paul is basically telling them when he writes here. He says, I don't need to write an answer to you about that specifically. He says, because you know perfectly, he says that there in verse 2. You know perfectly, and that means accurately. You know what's going to happen. And that is that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. I've already taught you that. You have the answer to that question. Because we don't know this for certain, but I am pretty certain that he would have taught them what Jesus had taught us and his disciples back in Matthew. And that is, but of that day and hour, 
when the day of the Lord was going to take place? No man. That's Matthew 24. And Jesus also brought in the thief analogy when he talked to him in Matthew 24. He says, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. Don't know that, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken up. So what's the Lord? He's like, don't get all uptight about knowing these exact dates and times. But you can know this. You need to be ready. Because he's going to come at a time when you don't think is what his answer was. So <laughs> Paul's saying, you want to know or we want to know when the Lord's coming and when the end of time, the last days is here. We can know that there are signs, can't we? Don't we know that there's signs? He tells us that. We can look at signs. But we're not going to know the exact date and time. And how many of these people, it happens very frequently, make these predictions and write these books that they somehow sat in their ivory tower and looked over all these number systems. They come up with all these theories. They're going to tell us exactly when it's going to happen. And the crazy thing is, people still buy the books. They make a fortune off that stuff. And the time comes and the time goes and they have an explanation for it. And some of them even have the courage to write another book with another date. And people have the stupidity to buy them. Come to me, I'll tell you some good books you can buy that will help you out and save your money on that, all right? But he says it's like a thief in a knife. He tells the Thessalonians, Paul says that in his first thing, you know perfectly, you know this. This is what you need to know about when this is going to take place, that it is going to take place as a thief in the night comes to your house. So how many of you have ever had a thief call you on the phone first before they come? You know, Frank... This is George from the South End, and I'm coming on over. I'd appreciate it if you leave the front door open, and I'll take care of your money and diamonds, and I'll be neat about it all. I mean, that's not the way it works, does it? I mean, they don't ring your doorbell and ask permission to come in. When does a thief come? They try to come in when it's unexpected and when you aren't aware of it, right? They'll break in while you're asleep. They don't care sometimes. They'll come on in there. You don't, they don't necessarily care that you're not home. But he's saying so it is. With the day of the Lord, it's going to happen like a thief in the night. And Jesus said, if you knew when that day and hour was, you'd be ready for it and say, hey, tell that thief to stop, wouldn't you? Or you'd be ready. Well, listen, if people knew it was hundreds and thousands of years off, that caused them to be lax. And if they thought it was going to happen tonight, that'd have them doing all these crazy things like selling their houses. But he says, no, you don't know. You just know what's going to happen. So you need to be ready, spiritually ready. But move on with your life. But spiritually, we should be ready. And Paul goes on here in verse 3 and makes another analogy. He says, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. That's a slogan, peace and safety. That's a slogan that the Roman government put on their coins they put it on banners, they put it on monuments, and they said, Rome, the government of Rome is giving you people peace and safety. And the Thessalonians, that city, it sat right on the Via Ignatia, is the name of the road. It's a major highway, and they were a major seaport. And Lisa and I were privileged to be able to go there, and you go in, in and through this gate, and you're overlooking that city, and you can, it's like looking down in a valley, you see thousands of these houses and buildings it all kinds of colors and there is this seaport blue seaport it is beautiful and this is a major city it's the new york city of that area and so rome they were trusting in the roman government to give them peace and safety that's where their trust was and that's what they would tell them and that's what we have going on in america isn't it we have a lot of americans trust in our great military power we have the greatest military machine on the earth and our economy's doing well and it's peace and safety isn't it i mean america has not known war on its shores we had the 9 11 attack but that's an aberration really we're not like the rest of the world where they got bombs falling don't know if bombs are going to fall under attack all the time it's not like that here in america we know peace and safety Paul's saying it's not the Christians, it's the they. And I would say the unsaved in America. When they say peace and safety, what does he say when they say that the next event is going to be? Sudden destruction. Sudden, unexpected, and unforeseen. 
Didn't see it coming. And the word for destruction means there is going to be ruin and death. So right now, let, let me just paint this scenario. So we got this election coming up, and let's just say Mr. Trump gets elected. Let's just say he does, and he's promising his thing is he's going to bring back the glory of America, right? And he's saying, I can get, I'm a businessman, I'll get this economy going, and I'll have a strong military. So let's say our nation elects him, and he does turn the economy around. And let's say he does have some military battles and he's victorious. And everybody thinks it's great. And they're rejoicing about that. Peace and safety. We're back to a nation again. And what does the Bible say can happen if you're trusting in that, though? All of a sudden, bombs start falling on this nation. It's ruin. It's destruction. It, w it wouldn't take much to get this economy to collapse. That 9-11 bombing, why should that have basically taken us to our knees? But it did. And that's how fragile things are. And I would say this, whether it's Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Ben Carson, whoever, no politician is going to grant peace to this country, peace and safety. And I think a lot of people, though, hopefully no one in here, are banking on that. We get the right guy in office and things are going to get turned around. I, like I said the other day, this country will be judged. It is going to be sudden destruction. It is just a matter of time. And I honestly don't know when it will be, but it is going to happen. Because like we've heard so many times, God would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah to leave this country unjudged. And so Paul says, when that happens, that's peace and safety and sudden destruction, what does he compare it to? He says it's compared to travail that comes on a woman with child. Look what he says. He says, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So he's saying it is going to be like birth pains on a woman. Now, you can see, we said God gives us signs, right? You can see signs that birth pains may be coming at some point, right? <laughs> I mean, when you stick it out like that, we're getting close, probably, aren't we? <laughs> so she can see the signs, and so can we, but she doesn't know the day and hour, does she? She doesn't know when those birth pains are going to start, because, I mean, I've been through too many of these, and, and a lot of us in here are, because we don't have a lot of induced labor in this church, so it's going by due dates and all that. But how many of us know, we all know too well, that that labor can start a month before or a month after or weeks, whatever you want to say, but very rarely does it happen on the exact day, does it? And he's saying that is what it's going to be like. So you're out to eat, which I was one night with my wife, and all of a sudden, honey, we got to get home. And it started unexpectedly. Cracker Barrel, we're leaving Cracker Barrel. Because something started. And that's his point. It's an unexpected start. But here's what we need to remember. What is it about those birth pains that we know, though? Once they start, they never stop. They'll start unexpectedly, and there's a period of time in between them at first. But what happens? They keep coming. There's no getting away from them, is there? And that's what he's saying here. This day of the Lord that's coming for the world, this destruction, this judgment... Once it starts, it's going to keep going like the birth pains of a woman. And how does that start happening? They get closer together. They get more strong, more fierce. And that's the way, when you read the book of Revelation, that's the way the judgment's going to hit this earth. It's just going to be coming down one on top of another. The day of the Lord will be like that. So would you turn to Amos chapter 5, and to help you find that, you'll find the last of the big prophets, Daniel and after Daniel, we'll have Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. So if you could find Amos chapter 5, he talks about the day of the Lord there. Amos lived in a period of time in Israel that is just like what we have in America. It was the golden age because at that time, Israel had regained military strength, both Judah and Israel. And they were very strong militarily. And whenever you're strong militarily, that lets your farming and your commerce is going well and theirs was they were experiencing a period of military strength and economic success and they were also a very religious nation they offered their sacrifices to god but they also <laughs> didn't obey the word very well 
And so God sends Amos there to talk to these people. And they think they're misinterpreting what's happening. They're misinterpreting the blessing of God and that their military's strong and economically they're doing well and that they're a religious bunch of people. They kept their festivals and they'd have all these observing the moons and festivals and sacrifices, but their heart was far from the Lord. But they're thinking God has got to be on our side. We're looking forward to the day of the Lord. And Amos has to address that to these people. And that's what you have here in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. He's telling them, look, he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And here's where we're saying it's as birth pains. In other words, it just keeps coming and getting worse and worse, and there's no getting away from it. And that is how Amos describes it to these people. You want this day of the Lord, but this is what it's going to be like. It's as if a man, he's running from a lion and thinks he gets away from that lion, but guess what he's face to face with next? A bear met him, gets away from both of them, goes into a house. Oh, I made it. I got away. Leans his hand on the wall, and there's a serpent, a poisonous serpent, bit him. And he says, that's the way it'll be from one trouble to the other. In verse 20, he says, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Because the day of the Lord will be deliverance for God's people, but it's also going to be judgment for those that are not living right, for sinners. And I'd also like us to look at Zephaniah, and the easiest way to find that is to find the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and turn back a few. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, and then you will come to Mr. Zephaniah because it's a, not a very big book. But he also speaks of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 14 says this, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. So it doesn't matter how big and bad you are, it's going to bring you down. That's what he's saying. He says that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wastedness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither shall their silver nor their gold be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. And so Donald Trump will be in a hard place because all of his money, all of his real estate, all of his silver, all of his gold will not be able to deliver him and anyone else that's trusted in their, their finances. But the whole land, he says, shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell on the land. So we know that that day's coming, don't we? And that can be troubling to a lot of people. And I would say, if it's troubling to you in here, and you feel like, man, if that happened now, I just wouldn't be ready. I wouldn't be ready for the Lord's return. I don't know that he would take me with him, because I really haven't been living right. But Zephaniah here gives us an answer. He gives us a solution because he goes on. Look in chapter 2. We'll read those first three verses. He says this to Israel. There's hope because the judgment hasn't fallen yet. And he tells them, gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before this happens, before this judgment comes, before the decree brings forth, he says, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Here's what you should do if you're concerned. All of us, though, should take heed to this. Look what he says in verse 3. Here's the solution. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek to do what's right. Seek to live right before the Lord. Seek meekness. Seek that humility that causes us to walk in love towards others. And it may be, he says there at the end, that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And that's a great promise for us, isn't it? If we're concerned about that, what should we be doing? And we should be doing this anyways. And that's what Paul is telling them. Hey, you know that it's coming as a thief in the night. And so get prepared. 
Be seeking the Lord. Seek to do what's right. Seek his face. Put him first in your life. And it'll work out. God will take care of you, is what he's promising right there. That's a great promise. Back to 1 Thessalonians. He's saying when that judgment begins to fall on the unregenerate world, the party will be over. Peace and safety is what they think. But they're going to find out no government, no false prophet. They had a lot of false prophets tell them in Jerusalem, oh, this judgment that Jeremiah is telling you about, it's not going to happen. But look, if God has prophesied sudden destruction to some false prophet when people aren't living right, is not going to prevent it. So the party will be over. It won't be peace and safety. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> but if it's sudden destruction and that's what God has decreed, it's coming. There's no stopping it. And look what he says there at the end of verse 3 before we get off of that. Because like we were saying with those labor pains, the people that are deceived... And it's a lot of these people that have read all these end-time books, but they're not living right. It says in 2 Thessalonians, God will send them a strong delusion, ones that don't love righteousness, don't love to do what's right, don't want to obey the truth. A strong delusion from God you are not going to overcome. And so Paul says they shall not escape. And the emphasis in that sentence is on not. There is no escape, no way. That's the way the Greek would, there is no way the unregenerate world is going to escape the sudden destruction. They, they are locked in like that woman having that baby. You're not going to get away from delivering that baby once those labor pains start. So once judgment falls on this earth, it's going to fall. There is no escape. There's no getting out of it. It's too late. And that's what he's telling them here. No escape, but on the positive side for us. And this is what's good. Paul is not rebuking these people. He's just letting them know this is what's coming. And that's all I'm doing. I'm saying this is what's coming. We're not going to stop it. Judgment's coming on this earth. But look what he says in verse 4. Comforting words to them. But you, he's, he talked about them, they, but he's talking now to the church there in Thessalonica. He loves this church. And he speaks peaceably to them. But you, brethren... Not for you. You are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. That's a comforting word. And that word overtakes, he said, it's not going to overtake you. That's a word where if, let's say, a person's sleeping, he says, you aren't in darkness. You're not like that person that's sleeping in their bed. And that thief comes in that room and they don't see him because it's dark and they're asleep. And that thief comes in and comes up and grabs hold of them. And that bed overtakes you. He says, no, you're not like that. Brethren, it's not going to happen that way for you. The world, it's going to overtake them like a thief that day of the Lord, but not for us. It's not going to overtake us. That's what he's writing to them here. Because, he's saying, the world is in darkness, aren't they? They are. We talked about that earlier in Ephesians. They have a darkened understanding. And that's what the word is throughout the Bible about the world being in darkness. Proverbs 4 says this, The way of the wicked is as darkness, and they don't know at what they stumble. You know, we had that guy broke in here, and they had the camera. You could see what he's doing, but he couldn't see where he's walking around in here, and he's tripping over the stage. And I mean, it's almost comical. But I'm saying that's what God says the world's like. They're walking in darkness and they're tripping over things and they don't know where they're going. They don't even know what they're stumbling over. They have no sight, no vision. They don't know what's going on. In 1 John 2.11 it says, He that hates his brother is in darkness. If you have hatred, resentment, we talked about that Sunday, the Bible says if that characterizes you, you are in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because darkness has blinded his eyes. But Paul's saying that's not the case with us. Shouldn't be the case with us. Look what he says in verse 5. Not with us because why? Verse 5, he says, You are all the children of light. And this is us, the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Now, that's maybe what we used to be, but that's not the way we are now. Amen? Amen. <laughs> We're not of darkness anymore. Children of light. That describes our character. So when they say someone's a children of, that describes their character. And now we're children of light, the father of lights. We have the nature of light. And it comes through in so many ways. You know, Thomas, I was thinking, 
when he went over to France on his trip years back, he told me, he said, I hated, he wanted to get out of that place because he said the people were wearing, he's seeing all these young people in dark clothes, and he said it was just dark, spiritually dark, and was just glad to get away from there. And I'll tell you how I know that what he said is true. One of my missionary teachers in, in school was a missionary in France, and he was over there. He said that was the hardest place he could ever imagine. He said the people were friendly to him. And as long as you talked about wine and cheese, you got along with them great, and they would smile. But he said any time he brought up the gospel, he said it was like this darkness came over their face. And that was the end of the conversation. Very hard place. And a spiritual darkness is falling over Europe right now. And it's falling here too, in case you didn't know that. But compare that. He's saying we are not of darkness. We are of light. We are children of light and of the day. And so compare that to a spirit-filled Christian that's been saved and filled. And maybe we need to go back to the more recent ones because there's a joy and an exuberance about them, isn't there? I mean, that's what I see. I'll, I'll tell you, I got guys in prison that had just gotten saved, gotten filled with the Holy Spirit. Man, those guys have a nice, clean countenance. And I guarantee you they didn't have it before because not all of them do. A lot of them still are in darkness. But the ones that have been saved and all of us here, there should be a joy and a light about us. That's what he's saying here in verse 5. We are children of light. There should be a glow about us. And the children of the day were not of the night, nor of darkness. And guess what? Unlike those that stumble, that don't know where they're going, we as Christians can see where we're going, can't we? We should have some direction. And Jesus said this, if we walk in the light, or John did, as he is in the light, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. We're walking in fellowship with God. And the other blessing we have that the world doesn't have, it says, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's a glorious thing. It really, I'll smile for you all, okay? And he said this in Ephesians 5, the same Paul that wrote Thessalonians. He says, you were sometimes darkness. That was us before. You were sometimes darkness, but now, he says, you are light in the Lord. And so he says, walk as children of light. Walk that way. should have a little bit of joy about you. The fact that you're glad you're alive and the Lord's coming back. And why is that? For one thing, we have the Holy Spirit within us, but we also have what to help us walk in that light. We've got his word, do we not? And it becomes clearer and clearer if we're looking in the word, that direction, that path. The song we used to sing in our churches years back, I always liked this song. The path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more unto that perfect day. That path of ours that's headed to where? It's headed to heaven. It's headed to our meeting with the Lord. It should be going brighter and wider. I'll never forget Brother Hamilton taught that message in 2 Peter. He's saying the, the path should become abundantly wider, our entrance into the kingdom, if we're walking with him. It should be, especially if we've been here for 30 years, we shouldn't be just like hoping we're going to make it in. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it in. No, it should be coming more abundantly clear to us who we're walking with, where we're headed. Our entrance is going to be a grand entrance, not just squeaking in. That's the way it should be. In Psalm 109, we sing this song, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path to give us direction. Also in Psalm 109, it says, The entrance of thy words gives light and gives understanding unto the simple. Now, I always liked that because I thought I can just think of myself as being simple-minded. But I can have more wisdom than people with PhDs and these guys that are nuclear scientists or whatever, right? Because that's the understanding that we really want that comes from his word, how to walk with him, how to walk in righteousness, how to understand spiritual things. That's the understanding. And he says the entrance of his word. I told a guy this last night. I said, I'm going to tell you what is very hard for us to do. And all this technology is making it harder. And that is for us to just settle down, just stop and read a portion of the Bible every day and stop and think about it called meditation just think about what it's saying think how that would apply to my life and that's not easy to do because you got things going off and you're wanting to do this or that and when your mind is constantly racing like that it's like Bevington used to be in prayer 
He said it'd take him a while just to get settled down to hear from the Lord, just to get quiet. And it's the same with prayer. I know that people do not pray like they should. I'm not saying anyone in here I know about. I just know that's the case. It's the case with everything you ever read or experience. And part of that problem is it is hard to get yourself settled down, to just cut things off for an hour and say, I'm going to start praying and get before the Lord and get quiet before him and start praying about things and things in your life and letting him show you things. But that's the way it should work. And we'll start appreciating that word, and you'll start growing in that word, and you'll start seeing the advantage of the word rather than just something you read or hear about when you show up for church twice a week. What you get here should just wet your whistle, so to speak. It's no substitute for you spending time in the word and in prayer with the Lord yourself. All the prayer meetings we have, they don't last long enough. That shouldn't be the majority of your prayer life if you go to three prayer meetings a week. So let me ask you this. Do we think, I think we do sometimes think it's a small thing that God has given us the light of his word. We got too many Bibles sitting around and we just take it for granted and we've been hearing all this for way too long. But I think we need to treasure the word like a man would a light in a dark cave. Because this is a true story. They discovered this cave, this is a few years back, but <laughs> this evangelist told this story, it's never left me. This, they discovered this cave. No one had been in this cave. And this man found out about it, and he wanted to be the first one in there to discover it. He wanted to have all the honor of being the first one to go into this cave. So he got him a big ball of twine, and he had a little lamp that he took in with him. The twine and the lamp. And he tied that twine on a rock outside the cave, and he thought, as long as I got both of those with me, no problem for me getting out. But nobody knew he had gone in that cave. He didn't tell anybody. This is going to be the big surprise. So he goes in there, and he gets a long way into that cave. And to do that, he had to go through all these little narrow openings, climbing over rocks. He's got his lamp still fine and his twine. He's good with all that, right? He comes into this big open room, and it's like, wow. He sees all these stalactites and whatever all those are hanging down. He's like, this is beautiful. I am going to get some of these and take them and show them to my friends. So he puts his twine down, puts his lamp down, sets it down. And he just starts getting so into it. Next thing you know, he's quite a ways off from his lamp and his twine. And sure enough, guess what, what happens? The lamp tips over. And he's got no light. And panic immediately sets in. It took him a long time to find this guy. They could see all the places where he had crawled around trying to find his twine. Thinking to himself, will I ever see my family again? thinking to himself, why did I come in here by myself? Why did I do this? So he had to be doing that for hours, and it went on into days. Couldn't find it. And he died. Got exhausted, and he finally laid down and died. Like I said, it took him a long time to find him. They didn't know he was in there. But guess what he didn't treasure like he should have? His light set it down didn't treasure that light, and guess what it led to? Not treasuring our light led to his destruction. We need to treasure this word way more than we've ever realized is the point. Because listen to what the Lord said. Just because I said it, you don't need to think anything of that, but listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ said about light. And we've already said that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Jesus says, yet a little while is the light with you. How much longer do we think we're going to have light in this country? Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Lest darkness come upon you. Isn't that what we're talking about? The darkness of the day of the Lord? For he that walks in darkness doesn't know where he goes. And while you have light, believe in light that you may be the children of light. That's John 12, 35 to 36. Because Amos went on to prophesy. You know what he went on to prophesy to those Jews? That one day, because you don't care to hear this word, you don't care to obey this word, that one day there's going to come a famine of this word. A famine of bread. Not bread you can eat, but this bread. It's going to be a famine. And it's coming here too. It's going to happen. So we need to cherish our word. I mean, that's, I'm telling you, electronic stuff, I'm saying, because I got it too. I know how all this works. 
But, you know, when you go to these guys, these old guys that are solid Christians like John Bunyan and those kind of people, those guys would know scriptures. They devoured their Bibles, devoured them constantly. And you read their writings, and they're bringing out scriptures in the middle of Isaiah somewhere, and they'll put a scripture in there, and I'll be like, I've never, is that verse even in the Bible? I don't remember reading that. And you go and check it out, and sure enough, man, and he's got that thing, like it fits what he's saying perfectly. I'm like, how in the world did he even know to put that verse in there? You know why? Because those guys treasured the word. They did, and so do we. I'm telling you, we need to treasure it more than we do. Or we'll live to regret it. But look, he goes on here. Paul tells him, verses 6 and 7, he says, Therefore, because of that, we're of the light and children of the day. Therefore, don't be asleep, verse 6. Don't let us sleep as do others, but let us do what? Watch and be sober. For they that sleep, they sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the, in the night. So he's saying, because we are children of light, and God's blessed us, redeemed us, we have a responsibility. So we shouldn't be asleep in sin like the world. We should be what? We should be awake and sober, the opposite of being drunk. Because he compares us to those in the world, and he says they're asleep and they are drunk. They're asleep, aren't they? Do you think this world is aware of what's getting ready to come on it right now? People in the world, they are totally unaware. They're living in a dream world. And they just think the good times are just going to keep rolling right on. Because they just seem to never end. And that's the way it seems to them. But one day they're going to wake up from that sleep. He's saying they sleep in the night. And they're going to realize this dream they think they're living is a nightmare. Peace and safety suddenly becomes sudden destruction is going to happen to the world. And they're drunk, he says. And when you're drunk, what happens? Your reality is what? It's all distorted, isn't it? You say and do things you would never do. You just don't understand things the way they ought to be. You think things are funny that aren't funny. And you think you're funny when you're not funny. That's the way it is when you're drunk. And he says, we shouldn't be like that, though. We should watch and be sober, alert and awake. And it's the same thing our Lord told us. If you would, turn to Matthew 24. And we'll pick it up here in verse 42. Jesus said, watch therefore, and here's the warning. You know not what hour your Lord does come. But you can know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come. I've already quoted this, but we're reading it now. Then he would have watched. If he would have known, he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken up. He says, therefore, be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. And who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat or food in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. And that's what Paul is saying. That's how we should be. Beloved brethren, he's saying that's the way you should be. But look what Jesus goes on to say. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. Isn't that not what we just read? The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him and in an hour that he is not aware of. Drunk people aren't aware of time. They're living in their own time. And shall cut him asunder, verse 51. This should put the fear of God in us. Cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus tells us what should we do. We should be watching. And what is a major portion of watching? We just, I just talked about it. It's praying. And I would say praying that God has you ready. Any sin in your life that you need to deal with. And how many times do we pray like that? <laughs> but David did. Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He said, Try me and know my thoughts. And see, Lord, if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in a way everlasting. He's like, I want to be delivered of wickedness. Do we want to be delivered of wickedness? That we can be children of the day? And if you would, if you would just turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, and we'll just look at verses 34 to 36. And it says this. 
The Lord also, in Luke 21, he says, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time, so we need to be careful, at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, and that's getting us from being drunk is what that word means, surfeiting, and drunkenness, and the cares of this life, why does he warn us about that? So that that day, the day of the Lord, comes on you like it will the rest of the world unawares. So he's warning us here. He tells us to take heed. Verse 35, for as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. And so the Lord says, watch ye therefore, verse 36, and do what? Pray always. Why and how? That we may be accounted worthy to escape. So if we're praying to be accounted worthy, that means, Lord, what do I need to do to be worthy? That's our prayer, isn't it? That we may have been counted worthy to escape all those things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. So let's go back to Thessalonians. So he says, therefore, in verse 6, don't sleep like others. But let us watch and pray and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. That's the world. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But he tells us we don't need to be lying around asleep and drunk like the world. Instead, he goes on in verse 8 to describe we need to be like soldiers that are standing guard and have their armor on and are ready. That's what he says. Look at verse 8. He says, but let us. We're not going to be like them asleep and drunk in the dark. But let us. We're of the day. Let us be sober. Not drunk, but sober spiritually. And here's what we should be doing, wearing this armor, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a an helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's saying, first of all, that armor, we've got to have something covering our heart. That's what a breastplate would cover, our vital organs. And what is it? He says, faith and love. And what would that faith be? Trusting God for all that he says he'll do for us. That's the way we need to be living right now. You want to be ready for the Lord's return? You don't want to be caught up with the world when that judgment falls? Trust in God for everything. All that he says he'll be. Our healer. Exodus 15, 26. I am the Lord that healeth thee. need to be trusting him for that, especially in these end times. What about for Wisdom. James 1, you think in the end times we're not going to need wisdom in what to do, how to guide our affairs. We're going to need it big time. And that's part of faith because James 1 says, if any man lacks wisdom, and I'm lacking it all the time in praying this prayer, it says, let him ask of God who gives generously. God says, I give my wisdom and you don't have it. What you lack, I'll give to you generously. And I won't upbraid you. I won't get on your case that you're that, that ignorant. You ought to already know this. And you don't know it yet. He says, I won't get on you about that. I'll give it to you generously. But how does he say we should ask? I mean, he could have just put a period there. And we should be able to say, I will do that. I'll ask you, Lord, for wisdom. And because you have told me you'll give it to me generously, I know it's going to happen. That should be the period. But he has to go on and add what? Make sure you ask in faith. Don't doubt me. I just told you I'd do it. But there's people, though, they still... God, are you sure you're going to do this for me? And they doubt the Lord. He says, if you're going to be like that, you're going to question me, God Almighty, that I've, I just promised you clearly what I would do for you. Don't expect to get anything. That's what it says. That's his words, not mine. But why can't we just put the period there for ourselves, right? We need wisdom in these life situations, in these end times, in raising our kids in this ungodly culture. What should I do? What should I do about this or that situation? What should I do about this ministry that God seems to be sending me into? We need wisdom in a lot of different ways, don't we? How to interact with people. Should I talk to this brother about this problem or just let it go? Should I overlook it? We need wisdom in a lot of ways. And he's saying, we've got to have on that breastplate of faith. We're going to need that wisdom in these end times. And we've got to trust God to be our sanctification, our righteousness, our redemption. Everything he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 we need to trust God for all of those things because we need to be trusted in his righteousness, not our own, to stand before him and his redemption, the fact that his blood has purchased us and our salvation. No matter how much goodness we have, that is our only hope. We'll always have to trust in that blood. So he says there in verse 8, put on the breastplate of faith and of love. And Paul had told them in Thessalonians here that love is a labor. Isn't it not a labor? 
you have to work sometimes at loving others. Maybe not here, but other places you have to work at loving others. And listen, we're going to really have to work on that. So we're talking about the day of the Lord and being ready for the day of the Lord as that day approaches. We're really going to have to work on that then. And people already in these other countries that are, are getting severe persecution, do you think that's not a trial for them to love their enemies? They're getting betrayed by their own family members. you think that's not tough? That is tough. And listen, here's what the Lord said, talking about the end times. This is what's coming our way. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And I told you all, that means to wax cold means you're blowing on something to cool it down. It's like extinguishing a fire. And so he's saying because all this hatred, betrayal, it's going to have an effect on people. And so we need to have on this armor, don't we? That's what he's saying. If we want to make it in the end times. We don't have on that breastplate of faith and love. We're going to be in trouble. It will affect your heart. The devil will steal your heart. Because he goes on, he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. So in this end time coming up, the world and the devil are going to be after your love. They are going to be after it. And we're going to have to fight with armor on to maintain it in the strength of the Lord and by God's spirit, aren't we? Because let's... Let's be honest, forgiving, and especially it's your family, especially if it's a friend, especially if it gets to be brothers that you thought you could trust end up betraying you in the end, you think that's not going to be tough? That is going to be tough. Forgiving, being tender-hearted, showing kindness to people that aren't showing kindness to you because their hearts are, are getting more and more wicked, it's not going to be easy. And that's why he says you have to have on armor to do that. It's going to be war. Now, that sounds funny, doesn't it? It's going to be warfare to show love. But I'm telling you, you're going to be in a fight with your flesh. <laughs> and that gets around to why you're going to have to have that helmet on. He talks about a helmet of the hope of expectation. Because when you're going to be bowing and kissing the dust in humiliation to forgive somebody, you better have something on your head when they get ready to step on it. And you know why I think he says that? That helmet is the expectation that God is coming back for me one day and all of this that I'm suffering, all these people that are just walking all over my heart and me and trampling on me and I have to forgive them about this and they don't care, you've got to have that expectation that it will be worth it. Because if you don't, if you don't have this expectation that he's coming back one day for me and I'll be with him in the air, Translated, it won't be worth it to you. And guess what you'll be? You'll be one of those that, that your love waxes cold and you'll quit. So we've got to make sure. That's why he's saying, that's why that's here in verse 8. We've got to have that armor on. Faith, hope, and love. We read about those in 1 Corinthians 13. They are essential to the Christian life. And we have to have warfare to maintain those things. Yes, the question, well, is it worth having this armor on and maintaining that, Paul answers that. He says, listen, it is going to be more than worth it. It's going to be more than worth all the trust in God and the trials you're in, all the things we have to put up with each other to love one another, maintaining that expectation in spite of all that, it'll be worth it. And that's why he says in verse 9, it'll be worth it because we have an appointment to keep. We have a destiny. Remember I said everybody's got a destiny in these end times. And that's what he's saying there. He's saying, verse 8, let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Why? For God has not appointed us. His appointment is not to give us wrath, but what? He's appointed us to salvation. We have a destiny of salvation. That word could also be deliverance is what he's saying. And God has given his people a word of deliverance in the end times. He has. And this is supposed to be the climax of this. <laughs> the part that's a joyful thing. We have a destiny, and it's not wrath. That should be a good thing, and it is a good thing. God says this about his people, I will spare them. We, I quoted this 
Sunday, I will spare them as a man spares his son that serves him. Those that speak of the Lord, that are talking about the Lord in the end times. That's Malachi 3. And listen to what he says. So he's saying he's not appointed us to wrath. That's not our appointment. That is, is that your destiny in here? Did you come and become spirit-filled and come to sit under a word to experience the wrath that the world does? Paul says, no, no, no. He's not appointed us to that, to wrath. That's for the world. He's appointed us to obtain salvation. In Revelation 3, it says this, because you have kept the word of my patience. Kept that word, got in that word, and it wasn't easy. Didn't have a lot of strength, but because you have kept the word of my patience, he says, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And God says if we'll just keep his word, we'll keep his word of endurance, he'll keep us from that trial because he's not appointed us to wrath. We've got to get that in our spirit. That's not our appointment. That's not our destiny as Christians is to experience the wrath of the tribulation. And not because of our goodness, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 10, he goes on to say, why? Because he died for us. He didn't die for us to experience wrath. He died for us. Why? That whether, and here he brings in, you know, we, we make it a bad confession to say you're going to die. It's not a bad confession because, look, you're not out. You're not out anything if you happen to die. If you happen to get to be 75 years old, pass away like Brother Hamilton, he's not hurting because he didn't see the rapture take place, okay? That's not a bad confession because of that. Well, I'm alive and it's going to be the end times and the rapture takes place. I mean, where do you get that from? Because look what he says here. He died for us that whether we wake, whether we're alive or whether we're asleep, you're not out anything. Because why? What's going to happen? We're going to live together with him. That's the whole purpose of salvation. So whether we, someone's in the grave or whether they're alive when the Lord comes back, the whole purpose is it doesn't matter. We get back to chapter 4. What did he say? The people in the grave, they're going before we are if we're alive. They're not getting hurt. And the whole purpose of all this, he died so that we could live together with him. Amen? That's what the Lord wants. That's our destiny. Not so we could be judged with the world. And God, that's the way he's always operated. You think about the Exodus. When he sent those plagues of judgment on that nation, did he not make a difference between his people and the Egyptians? He did. They did not have to partake of those plagues, didn't they? They had light when the rest of the place couldn't even see their hand in front of their face supernaturally. But there's light over there on the Israelites. And why did he do all that? Why did he judge the nations and yet separate his people and then he redeemed them, which is what we're reading there in verse 10, who died for us, the Passover lamb, he brought them out. Why did he keep telling Pharaoh, send them out so they can worship me? He brought them out so they could be his peculiar people. So he could bring them into the promised land and live with them and be their God in their land. And that's what our destiny is. He died so that we can rise in the clouds to meet him. Or if we're in the ground, you're still going to rise in the clouds and meet him. And forever be with the Lord. That is something to look forward to. That is something you need to think about every day. Whatever trials you're in. Man, this trial's so bad, I just don't know. Oh, no. You've got to have that expectation. that He didn't appoint me to wrath. That's not my appointment. That's not my destiny. My destiny is to live with the Lord Jesus Christ forever it really is and so he goes on here he sells them he says listen you should encourage one another with that with that fact verse 11 wherefore he says because of that oh this is a great thing he's saying comfort yourselves comfort one another and build one another up with that and he's saying he liked these people he says you're already doing it he's basically that's what he says there at the end even as you also do but keep doing it and so we need to encourage one another don't we that's what he's saying. Somebody's discouraged because these people were under severe persecution and tribulation to the point in 2 Thessalonians, they think that judgment's already started coming and they're partaking of it and they missed the rapture. He's like, no, 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 there's other things that have to happen. But he's saying you need to just encourage one another that these trials and these persecution you're suffering and how hard it is to love these people who are doing that to you. He's saying, no, you need to encourage one another to hang in there. It's worth it. And that's what we need to do with each other in this church, don't we? 
we see people that are discouraged, having a bad time. We need to encourage them in the Lord. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. The world is a tough place. It is in a lot of ways, and we need encouragement. Now, and all I can tell you is, when you become pastor of a church, you know, you start to find that out, that there's people, they need encouragement. And a lot of times, it doesn't take much. Just a word, doesn't it? It'll really change somebody's outlook. And you think about when that's happened. But I like this, what Chuck Swindoll said. I thought this was really good. About encouragement, he says, the lack of encouragement is almost an epidemic. The fact that people don't encourage one another. And to illustrate this point, ask yourself this. When did you last encourage someone else? He said, I firmly believe that an individual is never more Christ-like than when full of compassion for those who are down, needy, discouraged, or forgotten. He's saying that's the most Christ-like thing you can do is to give an encouraged word to somebody that's down or needy. Or forgotten. A lot of people feel forgotten. He says, how terribly essential is our commitment to encouragement? Is there some soul known to you in need of encouragement? And he gives some examples. A student off at school. I thought about that. I thought, what if somebody's off at school and they don't hear much? And all of a sudden, you send them a letter just letting them know you're praying about them, thinking about them. Put yourself in their shoes. That'd mean a lot to them, wouldn't it? It really would. A student off at school. A young couple that's having struggles. Encouraging them in some way. A widow needing your companionship. We have people here that are really good at that. And someone who has just failed, he said. And his last word was, encourage generously. And you know the number one problem they're saying with marriages? I think money is probably the number one thing. But they said the simple thing of letting your mate know you appreciate what they're doing. Thanking them does more to make a marriage healthy than anything else. I just read that in a book. I thought that was interesting. Just simple encouraging and thanking people for what they do, your spouse. Appreciate what you've done. And listen, that's the way the Lord is with us. He does encourage us. Because I always like this verse, Hebrews 6.10. He talked about falling away, but the writer of Hebrews says, But beloved, we're persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. But listen to what he said. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So he's telling us there, he's saying, when you either help somebody out financially, you encourage them, you do anything you can, you pray for them. He says, God's sitting up there, he sees what you're doing. You pray in private for someone and don't let anybody know that. God, he says, will reward us, doesn't he? But he's saying, God is not unrighteous. To see that you are taking the time to minister to that person and he will not forget that you're ministering to the saints on his behalf. That's what it says. I think that is a great thing. It says he's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. So you step out and reconcile with somebody that you'd rather just avoid them. But you take that. It says God's not unrighteous. He doesn't forget that you did that. And he'll bless you back in some way. And that should be an encouragement to us to do that, right? So Paul's saying here in verse 11, we need to comfort and encourage one another with the reminder that God has not destined us to wrath. So you see a brother struggling, encourage him. Get back on track. Because the way you're headed is not good, and God has not appointed you. I don't believe he's appointed you. Your destiny is not wrath. So get on the ball, or however you want to say it. <laughs> Tell him you're praying for him. So let me just say, when is the day of the Lord coming? And Paul says, you know perfectly well. You can see the signs, but nobody can tell you, and I can't tell you, the exact day or time. You don't know. But the answer to that question is, you need to be ready, is what his answer was that we just talked about for an hour. He says, you need to live not like the world that is going to experience that wrath, but you need to live as children of light, watching, praying, trusting, loving others, and looking, that expectation, looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we need to keep reminding ourselves and our other brothers and sisters that God has an appointment for us. And that appointment is not the end time judgment. It's deliverance, right? It's something we can comfort one another with and encourage one another, right? Amen? Amen.
Well, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for these words that you gave the Apostle Paul, these, these words of encouragement to us, Lord. And we're just so thankful that you have given us a destiny, an appointment, and that it is not an appointment to wrath, but rather to deliverance, and rather that we can look forward to meeting you, Lord, meeting you in the air, and so we will ever be with you, and that that is your purpose in our salvation. And just ask you, Lord, that you'll impress upon all of us to put on that armor daily, put on that breastplate of faith and love, and hold the expectation that one day it'll be worth it all, that one day, as we purify ourselves, we will see you face to face, and it will be more than worth it. I just ask that you'll put that on all of our hearts here. And I thank you that you'll do that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.